0: Coming up, Subversity, we're going to focus on torture as U.S. policy. What is torture? What constitutes torture? Um, This is Dan Sung. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the Regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. We'll be talking on the topic, What Constitutes Torture? Hi, this is Dan Sung with Sylvester here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, with us is a uh, re- representative from the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, a group that has been at the forefront of defending uh, folks in uh, Guantanamo, for instance, and also um, in civil liberties work uh, for dozens of years. Uh, with us is uh, Lynn Cates. Welcome, Lynn.
1: Hi, thank you so much
0: for having me. Uh, Lynn is an uh, organizer with the Guantanamo Global Justice Initiative at CCR, and you're a lawyer, you're a member of the Lawyers Guild, and you're active in its, uh, you're co-chair of the Middle East Subcommittee and a community activist with New Jersey Solidarity, uh, activist for the liberation of Palestine, and Al El- 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 Audia, El- El- the Palestinian Right to Return Coalition. Uh, you you got your JD uh, last year from Rutgers University School of Law. Yes. And, uh, so, um, um, d- is it true that at CCI everybody gets paid the same now? Still?
2: <laughs> uh,
1: actually, <laughs> they used to be like uh, that. It's it's not a, a collective anymore, but we have a collective bargaining agreement. um where, you know all members of the union and while it's CCR itself hasn't run as a collective for. Um, for over a decade now, ah. um, you know, CCR staff um, are unionized and, and organized, and, and you know are part of that environment. You know, what I mean, and and have a much you know better environment as, as unionized legal workers than many other unionized legal workers.
0: Well, for sure, uh, probably laws, law uh, what, law firms are not unionized probably mostly.
1: No, no. I mean, <laughs> honestly, most, most uh, legal workers who are unionized are doing public interest work of some form or another, whether it's legal aid work or um, you know work at a, a nonprofit organization or another kind of legal services organization.
0: Yeah, were you doing uh, public interest uh, work uh, even in, uh, while going to law school?
1: Yes, yes. So, yes. This,
0: so this, uh, so it was attractive for you to stay in this field.
1: Well, I mean, I pers- personally, I went to law school um, after... I decided to go to law school after September 11th um, ah. and after um, the roundup and the attacks that were taking place on immigrant communities and communities of color and, and um, you know, especially Arab, Muslim, and South Asian communities in sure. the United States. And um, the fact that there... That also really... Um, the right to organize politically, and our um, civil liberties and civil rights were very much under attack, and it was because of that that I decided to go to law school. So working at CCR, for me personally, it is, is exactly what, you know, I want to be doing, and it's it's great to be in an, an environment amidst many, many, many committed people um, who are committed to doing this work um, into kind of pushing back this assault on our rights and liberties. I mean, one thing that's actually really interesting about doing the Guantanamo work is that after the 2004 decision in Rasul v. Bush, which is a Supreme Court case that ruled that Guantanamo detainees have the right to challenge their detention in a court of law, um, that after that ruling, I mean, we now have over 500 pro bono mm-hmm. uh, attorneys representing Guantanamo detainees, and many of them are working through the pro bono departments of some of the largest law firms in the country. So, really, the legal community, at least after 2004, has really um, gotten on board in terms of defending the rule of law against the actions of this administration.
0: That's great. Uh, on this topic uh, today we 're going to be focusing on torture, uh, given that Congress is about uh, is talking about trying to restrict some definition or, or limit the government from uh, doing some of this stuff, and also the CIA is being investigated for uh, destroying some tapes that mm-hmm. were uh, made during interrogations mm-hmm. um, what what actually is the do they actually apply the uh, military manual right now, the CIA integrity status, or or is there a lot of loopholes
1: um, the CIA is the CIA unlike the military isn 't subject to the regulations in the Army field manual and really what the uh, the the part of the um, Intelligence appropriation that the House of Representatives passed um, that you know the Bush administration threatened to veto and that wasn't passed by the Senate was um, you know simply a clause that requires the CIA to follow the Army Field Manual. The reason why one of the reasons why the Army Field Manual was reissued um, in 2006 was to reiterate the importance. Um, I mean, even for even for military folks who who may believe for a number of reasons that, number one, you know, committing acts of torture makes U.S. soldiers less safe, and that, number two, even from a purely kind of intelligence perspective, the fact is that torture doesn't produce reliable information or reliable intelligence. So even coming from that perspective and leaving aside the fact that torture is illegal, completely unacceptable under international law or any, you know, standard of human rights and human decency, um you know, the, the U.S. military also rejected torture, and really, that's what this particular piece of legislation was about. It's quite unremarkable, really, when you think that the CIA would, you know, have to follow um, would have to follow <laughs> military procedure, right? right? But this administration has claimed time and time again that the CIA has the right to be above the laws of the United States you know, where torture is already banned, torture is already against U.S. law as well as international law, that the CIA has to follow the laws of this country and has to follow the laws of the world. And, you know, that's not a a radical statement by any means, but, you know, this administration is committed to rejecting even that mild limitation on the behavior of the CIA.
0: I was particularly interested in this, what's euphemistically called stress positions, uh, where somebody detained is forced to stand, uh, sometimes with their hands tied behind their back, and just stand for hours on end. Is that actually considered torture?
1: Well, yes. Um, I mean, stress positions and the use of stress positions are actually, um, in a lot of ways, if you look at the kinds of torture that are used today, not just by the U.S. and the CIA, but elsewhere around the world for um, in, in where, where torture is used, you know, forms of torture that are often most effective, very physically damaging as well as psychologically damaging, don't leave a mark on the body. You can't look at somebody and see the scars and the bruises, but stress positions and forced standing, um, whether it's being positioned with arms above one's head, being forced to stand um, on blocks of two different heights, um, being, you know, forced to, to have, you know, one's hands tied behind one's backs to one's ankles I mean there are a number of, of stress positions and they produce both you know excruciating physical pain um, and, and muscular pain and joint pain but also um, you know carry with them an, an intense uh, an intense psychological pain as well um, because detainees forced into stress positions being told not to move and being forced not to move from those positions is you um, is is a central kind of feature of the use of that form of torture. And it's something that, you know, Donald Rumsfeld explicitly authorized, the use of stress positions, even though stress positions of this type are kind of internationally recognized as torture and certainly as a form of uh, cruel and inhuman treatment.
0: Didn't he say that he stands a lot during the day, so what's wrong with standing?
1: Yes, he he said the same thing. I mean, kind of comparing the idea of, like, walking around and leaning on one's desk to being forced to stand up straight in an interrogation cell without the ability or the potential even to move. Um, If Donald Rumsfeld were standing in a stress position every day for this many hours, he wouldn't be walking around as the Secretary of Defense. So to make those kinds of comparisons, I think, really just reveals the absolute kind of impunity and disregard for human rights and for the absolute humanity of the people that, that the U.S. was detaining.
0: It definitely detaining. It trivializes it. Yeah. Uh, um, would 14 hours be considered extreme?
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, standing for anything above, um, for, for standing for anything above a few hours. And again, this is for standing where people don't have the ability to move. You can't shift back and forth, you know, kind of on your legs and move around and do all the kinds of things that when people are generally standing that they're doing. The whole point of a stress position is that it induces physical and psychological stress. So, I mean, it, it, you know. and, and this also goes hand in hand with the use of tactics such as, you know, sleep deprivation um, and, and, and torture via noise and music, playing noise and music at extremely loud volumes at all hours of the day. Um, a person who is sleep deprived, you know, it suffers actually a number of physical symptoms as well as, you know, being, as well as losing really one's psychological capacity, both to handle the situation of being detained but really even to to be uh, sensate at all.
0: I imagine your, ne- your knees become t- or your legs become totally numb and yes. you can't walk uh, and you basically fall down. Yes the um how long does it last the the effects
1: Well, I mean, the the physical effects um, can last for any number of times. I mean, people have had injuries um, looking at, at other, um, you know, situations and other cases, such as um, the situations of Palestinian political prisoners um, against whom the use of stress positions has been a standard tactic for decades. Um, I mean, there are many people who had, you know, leg injuries or never regained the same um, Sense of you know the same ability to control one's legs to stand or to walk normally um, following you know the use of stress positions for an extended period of time, but um, I mean one of the things about these kinds of Uh, these kinds of torture techniques, whether it's sleep deprivation, the use of stress positions, or even the use of prolonged isolation. I mean, Guantanamo detainees today in Camp 6 um, are kept in isolation for 23 out of 24 hours a day, that these um, forms of torture also leave um, intense psychological wounds as well. And psychologists who have worked with um, torture survivors have universally stated that those psychological wounds, even after, you know, bruises and and physical injuries heal, those psychological wounds are extraordinarily long-lasting and extraordinarily difficult to overcome.
0: Is it common for somebody who's suffered this to um, be afraid to talk about it?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, there are many... There are many torture survivors who don't wish to talk about their experiences. I mean, and and, and particularly looking at the situation of Guantanamo detainees and former Guantanamo detainees, um, many countries have made alliances with the United States in the so-called war on terror. Mm -hmm. And people um, who have been released from Guantanamo or have been released from other forms of U.S. custody um, have very real reasons to be afraid about publicly speaking about the ordeals that they went through, and some um, former detainees have spoken up very clearly. I mean, uh, a book I really, really like to recommend is a book um, entitled "Enemy Combatant" by Mozambique, who was actually mm-hmm. um, who was a British citizen um, who was picked up by. Um, Actually, by Pakistani forces in Pakistan, transferred to U.S. custody, transferred to Guantanamo, um, and and you know both suffered and saw a great deal of abuse, hum- humiliation, and torture in Bagram and Kandahar, and also in Guantanamo, and is really um, an incredibly moving uh, testimony to the experience of a Guantanamo detainee, but it's not just those kind of actually feal- fearing torture and, and fearing persecution and repercussions. It's also There's also the reality that having been a former Guantanamo detainee is in and of itself a stigma um, that can make it difficult for a person to work, can make it difficult for a person to you know take care of one's family and have an income. But beyond that, there's also the simple fact that you know, an experience of being a torture survivor isn't necessarily something that a torture survivor wants to constantly psychologically relive, sure. and it can, you know, and and so it can be um, an incredibly draining experience to 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 tell one story and to recount time and again um, the brutality and the horror of those experiences.
0: So the um, the military manual was uh, there. There was so Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld um, made an exception, allowing this. Then it was already banned, or what?
1: Um, well, I mean torture, t- torture and. The use of torture and the use of cruel and and inhuman treatment has already has always been banned under the Geneva Conventions, and the U.S. is a signatory to those to those conventions. And as as a treaty that the U.S. is a signatory to, those conventions are part of the highest law of the land. Um, and so, so torture has always been illegal under U.S. law as well as illegal under international law. And what this administration has tried to do, time and time again is attempt to rewrite the law, create loopholes, create categories, prisons, and people completely outside the law and outside any oversight in order to um, be able to get away with the use of torture and with you know, complete impunity in, in basically asserting the right of the President of the United States to kidnap anybody around the world at any time and hold them indefinitely for as long as he wants. And while that person is in custody, subject them to whatever form of treatment you know um, the CIA may choose to use at a given time. So when we think about the repercussions of what this administration is advocating for legally in terms of executive power and executive authority, it's really very frightening, and it really speaks to the importance of, of people um, acting to, to shut down Guantanamo and to stop this administration's power grab.
0: Have you seen this video that the Amnesty International put out uh it's a dramatization of somebody standing for hours an actor actually uh have you seen that one
1: yes i have it's um it, it's It's quite effective, and I think it should receive, you know, broad attention. I mean, one of the things is that people, I think, have a hard time visualizing or understanding exactly what these forms of torture mean. Um, And and on the CCR website, which is ccrjustice.org, one of the videos that's available on the website is um, by... A uh, French journalist, Henri Alleg, who was um, subjected to waterboarding um, in Algeria, and he discusses his experience. And I think that hearing that experience, as well as seeing videos like the one that you mentioned, really helped to bring home um, the very personal, real consequences of um, what the CIA is doing um, around the world. And, and, and you know, the reason why there is congressional oversight of the CIA now is because of the fact that, um, is because the the CIA's role in overthrowing um, democratic governments around the world, um, assassinating people, and otherwise kind of internationally subverting the rule of law, um, you know, came to light in the 1960s and 1970s, and what this administration is trying to do now is return the CIA to to a place when it can do whatever it wants and it can basically engage in in a war of terror around the world, under the pretext of engaging in a war on terror, and um, it's it's particularly critical that people understand the human consequences of these kinds of policies.
0: Yeah, the you mentioned Henri uh, Alleg, and his book is actually called "A uh, Question," uh, the question and he's the author of this book uh, that he wrote about his waterboarding experience during the Battle of Algiers, uh, and it's published by University of Nebraska Press last year, 19, yeah. 19, uh, 2006. Yeah. Um, and uh, you also mentioned, uh, I, I, I mentioned the Amnesty International um, yeah. that you also said you saw, and that's called uh, Waiting for the Gods. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a link actually on the Subversity website at KUCI.org to the dtsang to watch that um, do you feel that uh then that um anything the congress is trying to do right now this last week is, is that's not going to address any of this right i mean um, in terms you, of uh, which things the congress uh didn't one house pass a, re- a resolution uh, that this whole thing to try to restrict um what the government can do uh, to follow the uniform code of justice or whatever yes. um, that doesn 't really affect um, this part of it I well, mean the stress position stuff that Rumsfeld authorized
1: well yes, yes, it would, um, it would. but the, okay. the, the, the reality is that it was passed by the House as part of the intelligence authorization bill, um, but <coughs> it was not passed by the Senate, ah. and um, the administration has pledged to veto um, such a bill. So um, when the bill comes out of committee, it's unlikely that this provision will be included, although we think that any, um, you know, Congress or president that's claiming to, to speak for the people in the United States should, you know, be clear and take a stand for the law of the United States and the world as well, which means, you know, ending torture. I mean, adhering to the guidelines for imprisonment and interrogation in the Army field manual is about as far from, a radical demand as <laughs> as one can get. Um, I mean, it's really? not what's it's it, it's not what's needed. It's only a very small step. You know, the fact that these people are being detained without charges, the fact that these people are being denied access to any form of le- of legal repercussions. I mean, these are the fundamental problems. Um, this, which is only a mild amelioration, is in and of itself, um, you know, being rejected by the administration. But but that's what this what the House legislation and that clause within the intelligence appropriations bill um, was designed to do, which is to tell the CIA that it has to abide by military regulations in interrogation and imprisonment.
0: So, do you feel that um, any of the presidential candidates uh, will be better on this issue? I mean, do you uh, do you see that? I, I I suppose do you i mean do you have any faith that anything's going to change with an election?
1: I think it's important I think it's incumbent upon any person who is seeking to be the next president of the United States that he or she utterly reject this administration's policies um, not just in terms of torture and not just in terms of the CIA specifically, but in terms of the executive power grab, in terms of arbitrary detention, in terms of uh, destroying the right to habeas corpus, in terms of um, attacking dissent and attacking um, targeted communities within the United States, um, in terms of warrantless wiretapping and spying on US citizens talking on the phone um, without getting a warrant from from a, a national security court in terms of, you know, really this entire uh, policy of attacking civil liberties and civil rights both within the United States and around the world. And, you know, any presidential candidate, um, you know, if they're thinking about these concepts of adherence to the Constitution and the rule of law, um, it's, it's really incumbent upon those people to take a stand and come forward and reject um, the so-called war on terror and everything that's come along with it.
0: it do you have any faith in electoral politics?
1: Um, I mean, I mean, you know
0: yourself as an individual, not as a CCR <laughs> person.
1: As as an indi- as an individual, I mean, as as a as a person, you know, I I think that what's needed is um, is the mobilization uh, of people, you know, the, because the reality is that these. Um, attacks, you know, the the creation of places like Guantanamo, um, the use of torture, the the return to full CIA impunity, these impact um, all of us, and these impact all of our ability to to organize, and I think that the most important thing, um, really moving beyond the issue of, of elections, is the mobilization of people and the mobilization of people in the U.S. and around the world to stand together and to, you know, create a situation in which those who are elected officials um, feel that they absolutely must, you know, Make the right choice whether they want to or not. I mean, in, in the 1930s, the reason why there's unemployment insurance and Social Security in the U.S. isn't because some elected officials decided to be, to be beneficent, but because of the fact that millions of people mobilized and marched in the streets. And then when we look at any kind of progress that's been made against racism, we're looking at the same kind of history um, of popular struggle and mobilization. And I really think that there's, there's no um, alternative that is uh, you know, capable of really pushing back this assault. Um, although, you know, like here at CCR, we're, we, we engage in legal work, you know, and we're continuing the struggle by those mechanisms. So really, any kind of mechanism that can work um, to, you know, defend the interests of the people of the world against, you know, the rapacious attacks of, of this government, um, you know, is, is something that people should be engaging in.
0: Yeah, for sure. Did the did the House um, House uh, vote, uh, the House resolution that was passed but uh, is wait, awaiting to see what happens in the Senate and with Bush, uh, did that specifically mention stress positions?
1: Uh, no, it mentioned adherence. It said that the CIA needs to adhere to the Army Field Manual, and the Army Field Manual um, prohibits all these forms of torture that the CIA has used.
0: Ah, I see. And do you do you know anything about uh, what this interrogation tape w- would have shown if we well, one the, could the see it? Well, the
1: thing is, is we don't we don't know what it would have shown because um, mm-hmm. the the CIA and the and the White House decided to make sure that no one could ever find out. And so, really, all that we can do is speculate as to what it is that they were trying to and what it is that they've been trying to cover up. You know, and, yeah. And that's you know what we, we do know we do know due to the CIA's own admissions that they engaged in, in torture techniques, that they've used waterboarding, that um, that detainees have been abused in CIA custody. We don't know what's on these specific tapes because they made sure we could never find out.
0: Were these tapes made in the U.S. or in, in Guantanamo or where?
1: Um, they were made in secret CIA ghost detention. Um, the locations of those facilities have not been Revealed, Um, Hmm. they were these these are secret CIA facilities, um, often called black sites, um, whose locations are not revealed. Who they are detaining is not revealed, even to um, the Red Cross. Um, And that's where these these tapes were taken in secret CIA detention sites. That you know, there's reports of secret CIA sites in Europe, Mm -hmm. in Africa, and elsewhere.
0: Would the detainees know where they were? where they um, were detained, not necessarily?
1: You know, there's there's been an, an extreme, uh, you know, gag on detainees that were subject to secret CIA detention. Hmm. So really what I can, I can tell you about is, you know, detainees who were taken to Bagram and to Kandahar and to Guantanamo, um, I mean, after a while, they found out where they were um, in terms of, you know, but, but in general, the transportation of detainees was accomplished, you know, with hooding, with the use of black goggles, with the use of all forms of, of methods to kind of disorient detainees. But it won't be until those who have been subject to secret CIA detention themselves, um, until their voices can be heard that will really know what detainees knew or didn't know when they were held in black sites.
0: There was a mainstream movie uh, about rendition. Uh, did yes. you see? Did you watch? Uh, what was the name of that?
1: It was entitled. It was called Rendition. Oh right,
0: right. I saw it. <laughs> um, what did you think of the movie?
1: Um, I I personally did not get a chance to, to ah. see it. Um, some of my my colleagues did get a chance to see it, and um, of course, while you know it, it's it's important that these issues are reaching popular consciousness through you know mechanisms of the entertainment media as well. Um, at the same time, to a certain extent, um, my colleagues who did see the film felt as if there was a certain equation of of the use of rendition or kind of uh, a disappearing of of the characters of the of of the the man who has himself victimized by rendition, right. and the thing that. You know, and the reason why that's important—you know, whether it's an issue of critiquing a film or of looking at the issue and the political discourse around it in general—is the fact that um, that the voices of detainees and the voices of the victims of, you know, the so-called war on terror have been systematically silenced. Um, there's a reason why the administration doesn't want to release people's names, doesn't want to tell people who it is that's being held in Guantanamo, and those reasons have really nothing to do with security or or similar concerns. Those reasons have to do with the systematic dehumanization uh, of of both these individuals and also of, you know, Arab, Muslim, and South Asian people, um, and, and African people as well, and and you know it's important that we you know combat those policies by seeking to make sure that the voices of those that were directly affected and are being directly affected by these policies are heard. Yeah, I
0: think there are two things. One was that the film really focused on the uh, CIA officer yeah. who was an analyst and then turned into an operations guy, and uh, and how he dealt with the moral dilemma. I guess of uh, doing you know going on his first torture as he reported back to uh, headquarters and then second he um, the film didn't make too much sense in the sense that the person whose house who was uh, renditioned his house was never raided you would think if they thought he was a suspect they would definitely go to his house and look at his computer for instance
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like one th- yeah, one thing just about rendition and the use of extraordinary rendition is um, there's one case that um, people should know about, and it's the case of Meher Arar. Yeah. And um, you know, again, people can get information on this case at our website at ccrjustice.org. Um, I mean, who was who was a a man uh, who was visiting with his family in Tunisia when returning to Toronto for work? He was a Canadian citizen who had been born in Syria. When returning to Toronto for work, he had a, a change of planes in JFK. Instead of being able to get on his own plane back to his home and, and his family and his job, he was um, he was rendered to Syria, where he suffered torture for a year um, at the behest of, of the United States and at at the behest of those orders. And there was, you know, when looking at, at, at this particular individual and the story of Meher Arar, uh, it, it's almost you know, inconceivable that, in mean, the U.S. never developed a case against this person. And, you know, the Canadian government, when they engaged in a full inquiry into the case of Meher Arar, you know, revealed that there was absolutely nothing and absolutely no reason to to, to target Meher Arar as any kind of a so-called terrorist. Yet he, he was subject to, you know, in his case is probably one of the most prominent examples of, of the use of extraordinary rendition.
0: Yeah, the government in Canada actually issued a couple of reports on that. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's worth uh, looking for in in your library, and I actually just ordered that for the UCI library uh, mm-hmm. recently. Um, so uh, thank you very much. Um,
1: thank you. Yeah,
0: Lynn, uh, for talking f- with us on this really horrible issue, and uh, um, good luck with your work. I know you do a- excellent work at CCR.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And if if people are interested in more information about what's happening at Guantanamo um, or the work of the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, again, please visit our website at ccrjustice.org. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. (coughs) Uh, That was uh, representative of the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, which is leading uh, the effort, uh, getting even mainstream lawyers to join in, Representative Lynn Cates who is the uh, organizer for the Guantanamo Global uh, Justice Initiative Uh, and he's uh, she's the uh, an activist as well as a lawyer and she got into law school at Rutgers Law uh, because of her activism and she's been um, doing this um, organizing around South Asian uh, harassment of South Asians and uh, Palestinians uh, in this country uh, by the CIA and other um, law enforcement uh, or other authorities. Uh, CIA is not supposed to be law enforcement. Um, This is Dan Sung with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're going to take a look back at the Guantanamo uh, release of the pictures um, of the humiliation of the people in t- detained there uh, in a sec and we'll be uh, bringing you that um, that program uh, that is uh, actually on the on the uh, a program from the National Radio Project
3: Service ...to laws against torture but it doesn't stop them from torturing
2: Images of bloodied, naked, and shackled men, some stacked like cordwood on a cement floor, some hooded, standing on boxes with wires attached to their fingers. These are just some of the lasting images of detainees held by U.S. forces in Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison. Images that still pervade our collective consciousness, documenting the humiliation and inhumanity of war and the reports of suicides and hunger strikes by prisoners at Guantanamo Bay further remind us that a policy of torture, through deprivation and isolation, remains. On this edition, is the U.S. practicing inexcusable torture, or are these instances of overzealous intelligence gathering by a nation at war? Professor of Law and Philosophy at Georgetown University, David Lubin, addresses the issues. I'm Tina Rubio your host on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. It said, more than 100 countries in the world use torture to either control its citizens or promote domestic security. The U.S. is no exception. According to Human Rights Watch 2006 World Watch report, Torture and mistreatment appear to be a deliberate part of the Bush administration's counterterrorism strategy. Mistreatment of detainees by U.S. soldiers, the report concludes, cannot be reduced to a failure of training or a lack of discipline. But the Bush administration argues that the instances of abuse and torture are limited to a few individuals, adding that those involved have been held accountable for their actions. David Lubin, Professor of Law and Philosophy at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., has written and spoken extensively on the subject of torture. Recently, he spoke at an event in San Francisco hosted by Survivors International, a nonprofit that provides medical and psychological help to victims of torture. This is an excerpt from that speech.
3: As I was walking from the train station uh, to the office, uh, I was thinking that this is an incredibly uh, beautiful day and a colossally grim subject to spend the evening discussing and uh, also that if I'm able to do my job correctly you'll leave much more depressed than you were when you came in (laughs) Um, but uh, with that with that as the due warning uh, what I'd like to do is simply uh, um, sketch the legal landscape of the current torture debates uh, Explain what the legal issues are that are being talked about now that are still live, open legal issues now. And if we have some time, discuss a little bit uh, some of the moral arguments about uh, about torture. Um, I've worked on and off in uh, Georgetown's political asylum clinic where most of the clients that uh, I have personally dealt with um, have survived one form or other of torture. And the thing that strikes me about them, they're incredibly resilient people you know, with enormous amounts of spirit. And you know, if they weren't resilient, they wouldn't be in the United States seeking asylum to begin with. Uh, they wouldn't have made it over. Uh, it also becomes clear after being with them for uh, days, weeks, that uh, they all have ghosts. Uh, somebody who is lively... And, uh, you know, funny, chatty. It turns out that, uh, you know, his dreams aren't right, um, that his hair is falling out. I mean, there's classic symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's really the past coming back uh, to haunt him. Now, let's go back to September 11th uh, and the immediate aftermath. It seemed almost right away that is within the first two weeks of September 11th, news media were already talking about torturing terrorists, terrorist suspects, terrorist informants, and I think, in some sense, this isn't surprising. I, you know, September 11th was such a ghastly shock. Um, I think that most of us probably felt a tremendous mixture of anger and uh, tremendous and fear. You know, living in Washington D.C. and working just a few blocks from the Capitol, I know that in you know for months, actually for more than a year after September 11th, every time I drove to work, I felt as though I had a big target painted on my back. Uh, now, in that kind of a climate of rage and fear, it's not surprising that people think, well, you know, if you get them than squeeze them. But this was not something that I think was a majority opinion at the time. I'm not sure that that's true any longer in the United States. And it certainly wasn't a legal issue, or we didn't think it was a legal issue. I think for most of us, uh, the awareness that there were legal issues uh, attached to torture came in the wake of Abu Ghraib. Uh, two mon- within two months of Abu Ghraib, CBS News and uh, Seymour Hersh uh, both revealed the uh, well, first the, the photographs and then the Bybee memorandum, which was the the first of the torture memos that was written in the Office of Legal Counsel of the Justice Department, which is the elite group of lawyers that uh, advises the executive branch and that seemed to license almost anything uh, for interrogational purposes and had some extraordinary legal conclusions, including that if the president ordered uh, American uh, authorities to torture, then criminal laws against torture could not be applied to them. And it sketched out uh, criminal defenses to charges of torture um, and had extraordinarily narrow definitions of torture uh, as uh, being something's not torture unless it gives you pain that's equivalent to organ failure or uh, or death. Uh, now. Right after the Bybee Memorandum, it was as if the floodgates opened, and document after document came out either through leaks or the government revealing it because uh, there was a scandal to deal with, so that uh, within less than a year... Um, After Abu Ghraib, Cambridge University Press published uh, the first anthology of these papers. It was called The Torture Papers, and it had over uh, a 1,000 pages of documents in it. One year later, Cambridge, with the same editor, Karen Greenberg, published The Torture Debate in America, which had more documents. Both those books were out of date by the time they were published. Uh, we could put together another book of about three or four hundred pages of crucial torture documents that have come out since the publication of the torture date in America it was uh, this past fall. And I suspect that by the time that book came out, it would be out of date as well. And the reason is very simple. The government keeps acting and the lawyers keep lawyering. Now. The question is, how did we get there? So I think there are two things that we need to understand. First, uh, as background, is the entire worldwide movement from the beginning of the 19th century to outlaw torture. And secondly, the post 9-11 response of uh, lawyers and officials in the administration. So um, let's begin with uh, the background. Uh, Torture, as probably everybody realizes, was an accepted part of judicial procedure and punishment in almost the entire world for most of human history and really only became something that uh, the law banned beginning in Europe in the 19th century. Uh, The big boost in the 20th century was the human rights revolution um, that began at the end of World War II. So here we have, for example, uh, the Nuremberg Trials, which declare the torture in the course of an attack on a civilian population is a crime against humanity. And uh, that was one of the crucial legal steps. Secondly, in 1949, the Geneva Conventions for uh, uh, people detained uh, in combat, there are actually two relevant pieces of the Geneva Convention. Those of you who have studied it know that uh, the Geneva Convention considers two situations. First, a kind of what you might call standard war between nation-states. I mean, there's no such thing as a standard war, but what makes it standard is that the, uh, uh, the opponents are nation-states, and that provides elaborate protections for prisoners of war and also for civilians who are detained in the course of a war like that. Uh, torture and degrading treatment are, are labeled grave breaches of the conventions, and the conventions require all of the state parties uh, to criminalize grave breaches so that all the parties to the Geneva Convention, which today consists of every state in the world um, except, oddly enough, the Island Republic of Noru, which has no military and is not a party to the Geneva Convention. Every other state in the world is a party to it um, and the Palestinian Authority, the PLO joined before there was a Palestinian Authority, the parties to the Geneva Conventions. Um, All of them are required to criminalize torture and degrading treatment. now, that's for wars between nation states. There are a second set of conflicts that Geneva con, uh, considers, and these are wars that are described as armed conflicts not of an international character, and there is a big legal debate and a Supreme Court case that's pending right now about what an armed conflict not of an international character is. Does it include uh, the GWAT, the Global War? On terror, or is it only does that only mean internal civil wars that 's the issue that the Supreme Court is considering uh, in armed conflicts not of international character. there is one article of the Geneva Convention, article three. Uh, it's always called Common Article 3 because it's in all of the Geneva Conventions uh, that, uh, that guarantees minimum human rights to anybody who is detained in that kind of, an arc, uh, of a conflict, and among them are rights against torture and against uh, inhuman and degrading treatment. Uh, now, in, in federal law, the United States as a party to the Geneva Conventions has made uh, grave breaches of Geneva a war crime. And has also declared that uh, violations of common Article Three are war crimes. So in the federal statute book, we have a, um, a war crime statute, and both of these are, are felonies that are punishable by, uh, by life imprisonment or death if, uh, you know, if the grave breach results in death. In addition, the United States is one of the 150 or so countries that are parties to the uh, ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, one of the UN's two basic human rights treaties. Um, uh, And uh, the ICCPR also forbids torture and inhuman and degrading treatment. Now, the real leap forward in the worldwide criminalization of torture was uh, the adoption or the entry into force of the Convention Against Torture. And uh, the United States is a party to the Convention Against Torture. Let me just briefly describe what's in it. Uh, It, uh, first of all, has a definition of torture uh, as uh, the intentional infliction of severe mental or physical pain or suffering. Um, either by government agents or by people working in cahoots with government agents. So it gives a definition of torture um, that actually becomes the model for the definition of torture in U.S. law. Uh, Secondly, it establishes an absolute duty on states to prevent torture. Um, One significant piece of that clause Uh, says that no exceptional circumstances whatsoever, I'm quoting from it, uh, whether a state of war or a threat of war, internal political instability or any other public emergency may be invoked as a justification of torture. So the torture convention says it doesn't matter if you're in a war or a civil war because the framers of the torture convention understood that governments always have the excuse that there's a compelling emergency and that's why we have to take this shortcut. So now the parties to the torture convention have agreed no shortcuts, no emergencies justify that shortcut. States pay lip service to laws against torture but it doesn't stop them from torturing.
2: That's David Lubin, professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University, speaking in San Francisco. We'll have more in a few moments. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. You can also download programs or get our podcast at radioproject.org. Sexual Humiliation, Extreme Sleep Deprivation, and waterboarding, a technique that involves strapping a prisoner down, pushing him underwater to make him believe he will drown, are just some of the torture claims made by current and former detainees of Abu Ghraib Prison and the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. The government-sponsored human rights abuses that the U.S. claims it's fighting against in the war on terror now appears to be among the methods it's fighting with. Professor David Lubin continues his speech in San Francisco, and some of the descriptions about torture might be disturbing to some listeners.
3: The U.S. criminal statute outlaws torture outside of the United States. What about torture in the United States? At the time of ratification, uh, the State Department explained that we didn't need to outlaw it by a separate statute in the United States because it was already against the law in the United States. Obviously, the Eighth Amendment forbids cruel and unusual punishment. Um, The Fifth Amendment uh, outlaws acts that shock the conscience and nobody until very recently supposed the torture did anything other than shock the conscience and in addition ordinary criminal statutes against assault and aggravated assault and mayhem clearly outlawed torture and their parallel provisions in military law so that uh, torture um, committed by US troops Overseas not only would be a war crime, but it would also be outlawed as assault or mayhem under military law. And it looked like a very tight uh, legal regime uh, against torture. Now, in the wake of 9-11, this just began to change. Uh, The immediate response of lawyers in Washington in the administration and in uh, the vice president's office and in the office of legal counsel was to take a stance – Um, that in itself it seems to me is innocuous in the face of a disaster like 9-11, and that was what was described as a forward-leaning stance. They were supposed to take legal risks. Uh, now, some of the early memoranda that have come to light uh, or have been seen by reporters, even though they haven't come to light, show what this means. Ten days after 9-11, there was a memorandum that came out of the Office of Legal Counsel um, that said that there would be no constitutional objection to the president using lethal force within the United States to kill innocent bystanders in an attempt to uh, get terrorists in the U.S., you know, which gave a sort of new and unsavory meaning to the old title, uh, We Bombed in New Haven. Uh, a couple of weeks later, there was a memo that also coming out of the Office of Legal Counsel that said that the president has absolute plenary authority to do anything that he wants to wage the war on terror and that it would be a violation of the separation of powers and therefore unconstitutional uh, for Congress to try to regulate what the president could do. And this actually was a kind of presage of uh, one of the arguments in the Bybee Memorandum, namely the the so-called commander-in-chief override, that when the president is in his role as commander-in-chief, that just overrides every law. If the president orders torture, torture is not a crime. If the president orders murder, Murder is not a crime. That's the argument. It's never been tested in court. Um, the Bybee memorandum has been withdrawn, but the earlier memorandum has not. Um, now, Abu Ghraib at first was described as and widely perceived as a complete aberration. This was not what the United States was about. This was unauthorized. These were poorly trained reserve military police. They were bored. They were under incredible stress from daily mortar attacks. Um, They had gotten weird all by themselves. And part of that is true. I mean, there were some of the Abu Ghraib photos that haven't been released, which don't have anything to do with uh, torture, show that things had gotten weird. There's a photograph of uh, soldiers beheading a horse. Um, there are photographs of soldiers necking with the horse's head after it was beheaded. So clearly this was, uh, you know, this was a group that had gotten disturbed. Um, but the basic story, which is this isn't what we do, turns out not entirely to be true. Um, it is what we do to certain people with high authorization sometimes. Uh, now, I should say that the government has admitted to very little of this, We owe everything that we know to a number of intrepid reporters. So um, last November there was uh, uh, a story on ABC News, uh, CIA. Operatives had talked to reporters about what was being done with uh, high-value Al Qaeda detainees, and some of the some of the tactics that were used are things like the cold room. Uh, The person is stripped naked, soaked in water, put in a room at 50 degrees, and then continuously soaked in water as he stays there indefinitely. There is short shackling. Shackled to an eye bolt in the floor And made to stand for up to 40 hours And there's uh, what is I think the most widely publicized of these tactics Which I think unquestionably satisfy the definition of torture Of inflicting severe suffering on someone Is waterboarding Uh, This is a a technique that is centuries old It was the ducking stool In the witch trials It was El Submarino uh, in various uh, Latin American dictatorships. And it, uh, it involves uh, tying the person to a board, ducking them underwater so that they go through the panic experiences of drowning. There were stories that were coming out of Guantanamo from FBI agents who had witnessed various, uh, you know, various forms of torture or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment in Guantanamo. Uh, they reported things like crushing out cigarettes in people's ears, putting them in 120-degree cells. There was one report of uh, a detainee who had collapsed in the cell, had pulled all of his own hair out during the course of the night um, just uh, out of anguish. The Army launched a report. Most of that report, which uh, is called the Schmidt Report, it was uh, done by uh, General um, Randall Schmidt, uh, most of it is still classified, and it describes some of the techniques that were used on uh, at one of the high-value uh, um, uh, al Qatani, who was one of the several people who was the 20th hijacker, including, uh, um, in particular, some of the tactics that we saw at Abu Ghraib. Uh, intimidation with working dogs, um, stripping him naked in front of women, various forms of sexual humiliation, uh, making him wear a bra, thong on his head, um, having a female interrogator straddle him and uh, tell him about uh, how we had killed his buddies. Um, and uh, intensive sleep deprivation. Uh, he was interrogated 20 hours a day for 48 days out of 52. And uh, the other four days were because at one point he seemed to go mad and was just sitting in the cell with a blanket over his head and gibbering, and then his pulse rate fell, so the interrogation was stopped, but eventually it was resumed in prolonged periods of isolation. Now, those are... Tactics. if you read the Schmidt Report, most of those tactics are said to be authorized. Uh, some of them it says, I believe falsely, are authorized by the, by the Army Field Manual. Some of them are authorized, it says, by uh, the Secretary of Defense. Um, we've also seen at Abu Ghraib um, the, the case of uh, um, uh, al Jamadi. This is um, the man whose body was photographed, packed in ice, with one of the Abu Ghraib uh, soldiers, Samita Harman. Uh, giving the thumbs up. Um, He was an alleged bomb maker. He was arrested by Navy SEALs. They tossed him in the back of the truck and sat on him. Uh, Afterwards, he was uh, turned over to a CIA interrogator who eventually subjected him to something that has been called a Palestinian hanging. Uh, which is wrists behind the back and chained to the wall. Somewhere in the course of this interrogation, either the SEALs or the CIA guy broke his ribs and he died from suffocation um, during, you know, during the hanging. Uh, at the moment... Uh, the SEALs were tried. They were acquitted. Uh, one of them said afterwards, that's what makes this country great. We have a system, and it works. Um, the CIA officer who was involved has not yet been charged, although Jane Mayer was able to identify him, and uh, he is uh, he's living in Virginia. Now, along with these two things, the authorized tactics and the general culture of toughness that leads to unauthorized abuses um, – CID and torture, is um, extraordinary rendition, uh, which uh, Jane Mayer has called outsourcing torture. Uh, This is uh, grabbing people and sending them to countries where friendly but sinister secret police organizations will torture them and interrogate them, presumably uh, with a question list from the United States, now, how does you know, how is this justified, if at all, under U.S. law? Um, in two ways. First, the United States has said, uh, when we ratified the Torture Convention, we said that um, our obligation not to send people back to face torture um, would apply where it is more likely than not that they would be tortured. And the U.S., before rendering anybody... Um, obtains an assurance from the country that they're being sent to that they won't be tortured. And that means that it's not more likely than not that they'll be tortured. But the second argument that uh, um, most of us have been following this had supposed was an argument of the government uh, when the State Department uh, testified in front of the UN's uh, Committee Against Torture is that we've interpreted the obligation not to send people back to be tortured means not to send them back from the United States. But if it's another country, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't fall under that prohibition. Um, now, the, the two best-known cases of uh, rendition, uh, one actually was sent back from the United States. This is the case of um, uh, uh, Mr. Arar, who was uh, of Syrian birth, a Canadian national. Uh, he was changing planes in New York when he was grabbed because he was on a watch list and sent to Syria and uh, tortured for 10 months, came back to Canada and, um, you know, sued. Uh, the The lawsuit was dismissed because uh, the judge said uh, it would embarrass the Canadian government if discovery in the lawsuit happened to find out that the Canadian government had approved of what was done to Arar and, you know, the, the open secret is that yes, the Canadian government had approved of what was done to Arrar, and uh, the judge said that it would be bad for national security if the United States and Canada looked as though they had colluded in this. And uh, if it's, you know, the, I think the legal principle here is that if it's embarrassing to the United States, it's bad for national security, and therefore you cannot let a lawsuit go forward.
0: So. Uh, that was a uh, talk uh, given by uh, a professor of law, uh, David Luban, professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University, that uh, dispatched from National Radio Projects Making Contact. Uh, we thank the National Radio Project for permission to air that. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. Earlier today, you listened to, uh, you heard um, uh, somebody from, a uh, representative from the Center for Constitutional Rights. Talking about the uh, um, the uh, torture, uh, the issues of torture and what constitutes torture uh, at uh, at um, in in America and around the world, in the wake of uh, government if, uh, events trying to uh, limit that, and also in the wake of uh, the discovery of the CIA. Uh, uh, destruction of uh, interrogation, interrogation tapes and we talked with Lynn Cates who's an organizer with the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, and a lawyer talking about that this is Dan Zhang signing off with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine coming up uh, a new show, another show an existing show with our own
1: Jeff Scott